Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here, and I am enormously grateful to Dr. John Duke Anthony and the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations for this excellent conference and for organizing a truly distinguished uh, group of panelists who will be addressing you today on the issue of Palestine. Um, as those of us who grew up in the United States are aware, this is an extremely important issue to address in our country because most of us know so, so little about it. Twelve years ago, I was a small-town journalist in Northern California writing about the local city council, the, the fishing fleet. I knew almost nothing about Israel-Palestine, and that's the case for most Americans. Due to the woefully inadequate and distorted media coverage that we have on this very important subject. Um, just to set the scene before our speakers speak, I will just mention that a few years ago we have done a few studies on U.S. coverage of Israel-Palestine. And we have looked at how our U.S. news media covered deaths among both populations, certainly enormously tragic deaths for everybody, uh, both Israelis, Palestinians, and the rest of the world. And we discovered that, for example, in the first year of the uh, current round of violence, that there had been 28 Israeli children killed by Palestinians and 131 Palestinian children killed by Israelis. How is this covered in our primetime network news programs? We discovered, if you'll notice the chart, that they reported on Israeli children's deaths at rates up to 13 and 14 times greater than they reported on Palestinian deaths. As a result, many Americans have no idea that Palestinians are being killed at all. Uh, the final chart is, will be this one, which is on our study of the New York Times reporting on Israel-Palestine. The first curve there is the New York Times reporting on Israeli children's deaths during the first 12 months of that first year of this, the second intifada. Next, we'll see the actual death curve of Israeli children killed by Palestinians that first year. And it is the light blue column there. You can see it's following a similar curve, a little bit lower, but a similar curve because the New York Times had a number of follow-up reports. Um, next, we'll see the New York Times reporting on Palestinian children who were killed that first year. And it is the red line. You'll notice that it is following a very similar curve uh, to the New York Times reporting on Israeli children's deaths and on the death curve of Israeli children. It, also, it is lower, but it's a similar curve. Next, we'll see the New York Times, what next we'll see the actual death curve of Palestinian children killed by Israelis that first year of uh, beginning in fall of 2000. <coughs> and that's it. This bizarre pattern of reporting we have found in all of our studies of the Associated Press, of regional newspapers, um, of the, the various networks. This is why most Americans don't know what's going on and why I am so grateful to Dr. Anthony for uh, bringing a panel about Palestine to you today. This is a very distinguished panel. I'm honored to be introducing the panelists. Uh, they will take questions at the end of all four presentations. There will be cards on which you can write your questions and uh, they will be brought up to the front. Today they are addressing an important title. It is Policy Challenges Pertaining to Regional Geopolitical Dynamics, the Palestinian Future. The first speaker today is Mr. Mark Perry. 
He is the author of Conceived in Liberty, The Last Days of the CIA and Talking to Terrorists, Why America Must Engage Its Enemies. Thank you very much. Mr. Pick. Thank you very much. Thank you, Allison. Thank you to my fellow panelists. Thank you to all being here, for all being here. Thank you, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony, for inviting me again. Can I close this? Uh, I was completely energized by the last panel and discussion of the Arab Spring. I hope you don't mind if I open with a story. I uh, travel often to the region. When the last time I was there, I, I talked to a good friend of mine, Osama Hamdan. Osama Hamdan is uh, uh, the head of external relations of the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas. I spend as much time when I go to the Middle East with him as I possibly can. He's a good friend. He's, uh, he's often in Beirut. His family lives there, and I spend hours with him. He tells me about Hamas. I tell him about American politics to the degree that I can. He asked me a lot of questions about Obama and Romney and American elections and Electoral College, and I asked him questions about the Hamas leadership, Beirut politics, Lebanese politics, and I asked him last time about what our panel was just talking about, the Arab Spring, and I asked him the impact of the Arab Spring, and I said to him, you know, it seems to have affected every part of Arab life, and he said it's absolutely true. He said, I'll give you an example. He said, you know, every, every Saturday, he has five children. He said, every Saturday, our family plans an outing. It's a tradition in our family. We go to a museum, we go to the beach, but we always plan something together. And this last week, I went home, and my wife and I met with our children. We said, all right, this Saturday, uh, we're going to the shore and to some of the ruins of the Phoenicians to... Uh, a tourist site, but we think it would be good for our children, and our uh, nine-year-old daughter said, I'm not going. And we said, no, we're going. Uh, it's a Saturday, and we're going. All of our family goes there. She said, I'm not going. One of my friends is having a birthday party, and I'm going to the birthday party. And he said, no, you're going with the family to the shore, because this is what our family is. She said, I'm not going. I'm going to the birthday party, he says, you're going, and you're going to your room. So off she went to her room, he said, I came to work, and that night, I came home late, she was in bed, and I went into her room, and there was a sign over her bed, and it said, the people want to change the regime. <laughs> so he said, you know, the Arab Springs had an impact. Uh, I have chosen as my topic this morning uh, an issue of constant discussion here in Washington, whether there can be a two-state resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And before you go to sleep, um, I want to warn you that I believe that there can and must be a resolution of the conflict and that there will be and must be a two-state resolution of the conflict and that it is not too late to have a two-state solution of the conflict and in fact we have a model for a two-state 
resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I will begin by pointing out the obvious, that the readily available model for a two-state solution of the conflict is already in existence, and it is a Palestinian state in Gaza. Now, it's so rarely mentioned that there's a Palestinian in Gaza here in Washington because Americans don't like the idea of how this state in Gaza was created. Or perhaps because of who it was created by. Though the establishment of a Palestinian state in Gaza or Palestine in Gaza provides, I think, a perfectly reasonable model for state creation. The Gaza statelet was created by Palestinian after years of violent struggle that led to an Israeli disengagement in 2005. That is to say, for Israel, the cost of staying in Gaza outweighed the cost of leaving, with the result that the Israeli government ignored the calls of tens of thousands of protesters and the threats of thousands of Gaza residents and dismantled 21 Gaza settlements. I suspect that the reason Americans choose to ignore the Gaza model for the creation of a Palestinian state is that it contradicts President Barack Obama's reading of our own history, in which African Americans engaged in the successful nonviolent struggle for their rights within our own republic. It's not a stretch. Mr. Obama has transferred his views of the African American struggle to the Palestinian struggle. Listen to what he has to say. He's done this on several occasions, noting the Palestinians fight for their rights. He's used this phrase, the Palestinians are fighting for their rights. And he has urged Palestinians to use nonviolence as a tactic to gain those rights. Now, I'm loath to criticize Mr. Obama, but I find his reading of history suspect because he prefers to remember the triumph of, albeit courageous, bus boycotts and lunch counter sit-ins to the painful memories of burning cities and race riots, which were also at the heart of the African-American struggle for their rights. I grew up in this era, and I think we will remember if we delve into our memories, that the president in 1968, Lyndon Johnson, couldn't deploy the 82nd Airborne to Vietnam, though he wanted to, because it was in Detroit. Palestinians are not fighting for their rights. They have their rights. They're inalienable given to them, as it says in our Declaration of Independence, by God. What the Palestinians are fighting for is their freedom and their land.
That's an entirely different kind of a struggle than a struggle for rights. And a struggle for freedom includes a different kind of tactics than those engaged in by lunch counter sit-ins or bus boycotts. <clears throat> Uncomfortable as that fact may be. So let's be blunt about this struggle. Violence, while abhorrent, and it's abhorrent to me, is a fact of history. And it's a fact that is certainly not lost on the Palestinians of the West Bank. And there's this. It simply happens to be true. You can check the record. It simply happens to be true that over the last 35 years, from the point at which Israel occupied the lands of the West Bank and Gaza, that the only time during which settlement construction actually ceased, really, <laughs> was during the Second Intifada, when attacks on Israel were at their height. when Israelis were dying. And the times at which Israel construction were at their peak was when Palestinians were quiescent. That is to say, now. There are also some other variables about Israel's relationship with the Palestinians of Gaza that are interesting. And I note in particular, and I'll finish quickly and on this note, that while Israel regularly castigates the Palestinian leadership as in Ramallah as weak, these are quotes from Haaretz, the Palestinian leadership is described in Ramallah as weak, vacillating, incompetent, and corrupt. The Israeli leadership reserves a quite different set of descriptors for the leadership of Gaza bordering on respect. For Israel, the Gaza leadership is many things, but weak is not one of them. There is, in fact, an emerging rules of the game between Israel and the Gaza Palestinians that is more akin to the relationship between national adversaries than between occupied and occupier. So that while Israel regularly and rather tiresomely describes Gaza as a terrorist entity, it recoils from any suggestions of a reoccupation of the enclave. My claim here, therefore, is that what we might see in the next four years is a reemerging strategy among the Palestinians of the West Bank that eschews a strategy that is manifestly not working of nonviolence and of cooperation with Israeli security forces. And what that means is an uptick in violence of a third intifada, and it behooves us in the United States to prepare for what might in fact be inevitable. Thank you.
Uh, is this on? Thank you very much for a, a strong speech. I'm saddened to be the timekeeper and have to cut people off who I would love to hear longer, as I'm sure you would, but that's my job. Um, and certainly it's so important to understand, again, as most Americans don't, that um, there is, of course, this massive nonviolent movement, both in Gaza and the West Bank, in which dozens of people have been killed by Israeli forces, in, including several Americans. Uh, the, our next speaker I'm happy to introduce is Mr. Jeffrey Steinberg. Mr. Steinberg has been a policy analyst and journalist for nearly 40 years, writing for Executive Intelligence Review and numerous Middle East journals. He authored groundbreaking work on the role of the American neoconservative movement during the Bush-Cheney administration and a great deal else. Uh, Mr. Steinberg. I want to thank Dr. John Duke Anthony and the National Council and thank all of you for being up and relatively awake at this hour. Uh, I'm going to talk about Israel. On September 17, 2012, the highly respected and sometimes authoritative gossip columnist of the New York Post, Cindy Adams, quoted Dr. Henry Kissinger, warning that, quote, in 10 years there will be no more Israel, unquote. Now, there's some dispute, given the source of this quote, uh, over whether or not Kissinger ever made the statement. Uh, in fact, an aide promptly denied the report in the New York Post. I'm told that the quote was accurate, but that it was meant more as a warning than as a forecast of something inevitable. <clears throat> in any case, the mere fact that such an account of a statement by Dr. Kissinger would receive wide news circulation and be even considered to be credible says, I think, a great deal about the current state of affairs in Israel and in the U.S.-Israeli relationship. The purported Kissinger statement did not occur in a vacuum. In the past five years, the dam has burst in the long taboo subject of the strategic benefits and liabilities of the U.S. special relationship with Israel has at long last become the subject of widespread public debate. And I can tell you that behind the curtains in national security circles, the debate is even more intense. In 2007, John Mearsheimer and Stephen Walt wrote in their book-length elaboration of an earlier essay, The Israeli Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, quote, unconditional support for Israel is undermining relations with other U.S. allies, casting doubt on America's wisdom and moral vision, helping inspire a generation of anti-American extremists and complicating U.S. efforts to deal with a volatile but vital region. In short, the largely unconditional special relationship between the U.S. and Israel is no longer defensible on strategic grounds. In June of 2010, Dr. Anthony Cordesman penned an essay published by the Center for Strategic and International Studies posing the question, is Israel a strategic liability? In the essay, he warned, again quoting, it is time Israel realized that it has obligations to the United States as well as the United States to Israel, and that it becomes far more careful about the extent to which it tests the limits of U.S. patience and exploits the support of American Jews. This does not mean taking a single action that undercuts Israeli security, but it does mean realizing that Israel should show enough discretion 
to reflect the fact that it is a tertiary U.S. strategic interest in a complex and demanding world, end quote. Now, I could go on and on, but I think the point is clear. After nearly 65 years, at least some strategic thinkers in the United States have come full circle, back to warnings that were issued on dozens of occasions by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, by then Secretary of State General George Marshall, and other top American officials at the close of World War II, prior to President Harry Truman's decision to support the partitioning of Palestine and the establishment of the State of Israel. The second volume of the official history of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, covering the period 1947 to 1949, devoted a 30-page chapter to the agonizing debate over how to deal with the future of Palestine at the close of World War II and the end of the British Mandate. Overwhelmingly, the chiefs, with the full support of Secretary Marshall, Secretary of Defense James Forrestal, and every American diplomat with extensive experience in the Middle East, opposed any form of partition. Having just come out of a second horrific war in two generations, the top American military thinkers made their views absolutely clear. On October 10, 1947, the chiefs unanimously wrote to Secretary of Defense, quote, a decision to partition Palestine, if the decision were supported by the United States, would prejudice United States strategic interests in the Near East and Middle East to the point that United States influence in the area would be curtailed to that which could be maintained by military force. They then went on to prophetically warn that there was, quote, grave danger that such a decision would result in serious disturbances throughout the Near and Middle East, unquote. It was, the document concluded, quote, of great strategic importance to the United States to retain the goodwill of the Arab and Muslim states. However, these states are strongly, if not violently, opposed to any solution of the Palestinian problem involving partition of that state, unquote. Lloyd Henderson, director of State Department Office of Near East and African Affairs, had written in nearly identical terms to Secretary of State Marshall on September 22, 1947, on behalf of, quote, nearly every member of the Foreign Service or of the Department who has worked to any appreciable extent on Near Eastern problems, unquote, opposing any partition and arguing strenuously against any American involvement in the event of partition. The Joint Chiefs of Staff had proposed significantly that if the United Nations General Assembly did support partition, the United Kingdom should be put in charge alone because any U.S. participation would, quote, invalidate entirely current estimates of required strength of the Army, Navy, and Air Force, unquote. A subsequent study by the Joint Chiefs prepared for the Secretary of State assessed that any peacekeeping role for the United States in Palestine would require an initial deployment of 104,000 troops and that troop requirements would triple in the event of any outbreak of conflict. The proposal to saddle Britain with exclusive responsibility for the security of a partitioned Palestine was of particular significance. General Marshall and most every other American wartime military leader had gone through many exasperating experiences with Great Britain whose wartime policies were colored by the priority of fully restoring a post-war British Empire. 
This had been a point of tremendous friction between President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill throughout the war as cataloged by FDR's son and military aide Elliot Roosevelt in his memorable book As He Saw It. And my colleague Mark Perry has written a book called Partners in Command that goes through even more detail on Marshall and Eisenhower's reactions to some of the conflicts with their British counterparts. General Marshall had been involved in a running battle over wartime strategy and post-war objectives with all of his British counterparts, as had General Eisenhower. The experience would later inform President Eisenhower's courageous decision to order the British, French, and Israeli forces out of the Suez to restore Egyptian sovereign control over the canal. President Eisenhower's actions in the Suez crisis, like General Marshall and the Joint Chiefs' opposition to any partitioning of Palestine, were two of the high points of America's historic anti-colonialist foreign and national security policy in the entire post-war period. I firmly believe that General Marshall saw the strategy of partition in Palestine and in India as an attempt at a post-war revival of the old British divide-and-conquer imperial policies that he and FDR had come to detest throughout the wartime alliance. As everyone in this audience presumably knows, President Truman opted to endorse partition and was the first leader of a major world power to recognize the state of Israel. General Marshall had informed Truman that if the president endorsed a separate Israeli state, he would not vote for him in the 1948 elections. Truman's young aide, Clark Clifford, had participated in the meeting where General Marshall voiced his strongest opposition to partition. And Marshall had taken issue with the fact that Clifford was even allowed in the room since he was a domestic political advisor and the issue on the table was one of vital U.S. national security interest. Truman set the course for much of the next 65 years by putting domestic political considerations and the power of the Zionist lobby above vital American interest in supporting partition and recognizing Israel. Sadly, the warnings of General Marshall and the Joint Chiefs of Staff proved prescient beyond their wildest dreams, which brings us back to Dr. Kissinger. Israel has not only squandered its special relationship with the United States, the actions of successive Israeli governments over recent decades have created an ex actual existential crisis of Israel's own making. Although the 2003 overthrow of Saddam Hussein's government in Iraq and the unraveling of Syria in the past 19 months have virtually eliminated any credible sovereign military threat to Israel from any rival state in the neighboring region. Israel is facing perhaps its greatest security crisis. This new reality was candidly acknowledged by Major General Aviv Kochavi, the head of the Israeli Military Intelligence Directorate, in his annual report on the regional security situation delivered to the IDF Chief of Staff on August 27, 2012. General Kashavi warned that Israel could face an eruption of regional instability and chaos at any moment and that Israel's formerly stable relations with its key neighbors Egypt and Jordan and the long-running ceasefire with Syria were now in serious jeopardy. In point of fact, Israel is facing its greatest existential crisis in generations as the result of its own policy and the underlying axioms of Zionism itself. As anyone who has seriously studied Shakespeare knows, the essence of tragedy is when a people cannot see the fatal flaws in their own underlying cultural axioms and fail to change before they are doomed. The underlying of axiom of Zionism 
is that Jews will always be persecuted whenever they are in a minority. Therefore, Jewish survival is based on the securing of a permanent Jewish majority state. Yet the current leadership of the state of Israel is also committed to the idea that Israel must secure buffer areas in the West Bank, the Jordan Valley, and the Golan Heights, assuring that there can be no durable peace and friendship with their neighbors, and that the Palestinian people are permanently denied a viable home on land they have owned and worked for centuries. I'll skip to the very end and just end by quoting the great scientist Albert Einstein, who's been quoted as saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. After 65 years of failing to heed the warnings of some of our great wartime leaders, isn't it time to return to sanity? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for another very interesting talk. And anybody interested in more on the history of U.S.-Israel relations, we have a very long article on that that I think will be quite interesting to many of you on the Council for the National Interest.org website. Our next speaker is Dr. Tamara Sun. Uh, she's the William R. Kennan Distinguished Professor of Humanities, College of William and Mary, author of Interpreting Islam, Bendale Jawi's, sorry, Jawzi's Islamic Intellectual History, Religious Law Through Law. I must get my glasses here. <laughs> uh, Judaism and Islam, Islam, A Brief History, and the Religion Toolkit, A Complete Guide to Religious Studies. Dr. Sun. Thank you, Allison. And, and let me add my thanks to Dr. Anthony and to his brilliant staff for another wonderful NCUSAR conference, Maryam in particular, who has done so much work, really. It's come together so well. Um, and thank my colleagues on this panel for very enlightening uh, talks. I've, I'm revising my paper as I listen to them because I don't want it to have too much overlap. But what I'll do today is focus on uh, the issue of Palestine in regional context. In 1990, the eyes of the world turned to the Middle East when Saddam Hussein launched his disastrous invasion of Kuwait. In 1991, the U.S. launched its first Gulf War, insisting that occupation of another country by force was illegal and had to be stopped. That was a principle. When Palestinians insisted that the same principle should apply to them, Policymakers and pundits argued that there was no linkage, that was the term, no link, linkage between the two conflicts. Saddam had invaded Kuwait, and that was intolerable. The Palestinian-Israeli conflict had a different dynamic, end of story. I hosted a conference that year suggesting that there was indeed linkage, that the illegality of occupation of territory by force could be considered a principle only if it was applied consistently. Otherwise, it would be perceived not as a principle, but as an excuse. The conference was not received well by those who insisted on exceptionalism in the case of the Palestinian territories, and the further suggestion that an independent Palestinian state would organize democratically and serve as a model for the region was positively ridiculed. 
Bear in mind, this was during the early days of allegations that Muslims and Arabs, uh, more specifically, were inherently undemocratic. Now, more than 20 years later, the Arab Spring has again brought the attention of the, to, of the world to the region as a whole. Egyptians and Tunisians and Libyans' democratization progress has been generally well-received. Not uniformly, but at least enough to dispel the myth that Muslims don't want democracy. In light of ongoing democratization in the region, one would hope that we can finally dismiss the clash of civilizations fantasies. Arabs and Muslims, like everyone else, prefer government of, by, and for the people. But again, Palestinian concerns are being bracketed. In fact, even in the context of their limited autonomy, the focus has been less on the form of governance than on its results, particularly in the case of Gaza, as we've discussed already, and its election of Hamas leadership. As happened with Algeria 20 years ago, we valorize democracy, except when we don't. And that is when we don't like the results of your democratic choices. Actually, democratization in the region seems to have adversely affected the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Israel has never felt secure in the region, but at least authoritarian regimes seemed stable, and in the case of Egypt at least, reliable partners. Now, as authoritarian pillars tumble, Israel feels even more threatened. Fears have been expressed, as we've discussed, that a popularly governed Egypt will abrogate its deeply unpopular Camp David Treaty and trade accords with Israel. But instead of focusing on the sources of the conflict, the continued occupation of Palestinian lands, not to mention the Golan Heights, Israel has shifted the focus to concerns about the perceived threat from Iran. And that, combined with the rejection of the results of Gaza's democratic choices, has resulted in zero progress toward Palestinian statehood. I'd like to revisit the issue of linkage, this time suggesting that the issue of Palestine to, uh, that linking the issue of Palestine to regional democratization could indicate uh, a direction forward. We know that Palestinians are ready for statehood. Through decades of life under foreign domination, Palestinians have had to develop their own structures for internal governance. Since the formation of the PNC, the Palestinian National Council, in 1964, Palestinian civil society has displayed levels of transparency and pluralist self-governance unprecedented in the region. And this, despite predictable levels of patronage and corruption and the rise of sectarian-based governance in reaction to continued failure at the national level. I will leave Gaza to my colleague, Dr. Roy, but regarding the West Bank, since the 1993 Oslo Accords, the Palestinian Authority has established constitutional institutions, I should say, institutions of governance, complete with separation of powers, directly elected president, legislative council with 132 elected representatives, prime minister, cabinet ministers, etc. In an effort to strengthen 
democratic governance. Prime Minister Fayyad launched uh, an institution-building program in 2009 aimed at improving transparency and accountability. But the question is how to get the chance to exercise these rights. The, while great power international efforts have failed, could a regional effort be effective, especially a newly democratized and democratizing regional effort? And I would like to suggest that it could. There remains on the table, as we have heard uh, Ambassador Freeman yesterday mention and uh, His Royal Highness Prince Turki and Ambassador Smith this morning, a viable alternative, a viable regional approach. Mubadrat al-Salam al-Arabiya, the Arab Peace Initiative, which was first proposed at the Arab League Summit in Beirut in 2002, again endorsed at the 2007 Riyadh Summit, calling for Israel's compliance with United Nations Security Council resolutions, calling for withdrawal from occupied uh, territories, and including the signing of a peace agreement establishing normal relations between Israel and all Arab states. Now, Israel so far has not been persuaded to respond positively to this initiative. So why would democratization in the region make it any different? Democratization has brought a number of changes in regional dynamics. Egypt's new government now represents an overwhelming public opinion, and that public opinion supports the establishment of a Palestinian state. In May 2011, Cairo hosted the long-estranged West Bank and Gaza leaders who signed an agreement aimed at reconciliation. In September 2012, just last month, Egypt's President Morsi addressed the United Nations and spoke of the new Egypt's determination to regain its standing in, among nations and assume an effective role in global issues stemming from the will of the people as well as the legitimacy on which the regime is founded. The first issue which the world must exert all its efforts in resolving, President Morsi said, on the basis of justice and dignity is the Palestinian issue. Meanwhile, in January 2012, the Syrian civil war forced the relocation of Hamas external leadership from Damascus, which means the loss of Syrian and Iranian support that has allowed Hamas leadership to remain aloof from the Palestinian Authority. In February 2012, the agreement between the PA and Hamas was reiterated at Doha, and again last month, Turkey's Prime Minister Erdogan and President Morsi joined together in opposing Bashar al-Assad and supporting all Palestinians. The combination of demographic powerhouses, Turkey and Egypt, with the economic power of the Gulf could provide sufficient ballast to remove, to, sorry, move a regional Palestinian peace process forward. What's more, progress for Palestinians is essential to consolidate uh, democratization progress in the region. We know that justice delayed is not just justice denied. We know that in the case of Palestinians, just as an example, justice denied, justice delayed results in radicalization. We could argue that the development of Hamas in the 1980s is itself, with its rejectionist approach, a result of that approach. But 
we have to recognize that Hamas itself is now dealing with another iteration of that dynamic. Salafi activists are currently attempting to derail democratization in the region, as we've seen in the attacks on Israeli checkpoints, borders, both in the north and the south. We also know that chaos in Syria is attracting Salafi activists, again, people who do not recognize or respect national borders, trying to destabilize those borders. We've seen the chaos in Syria already pouring over into Lebanon. It's a matter of time before it explodes elsewhere. Obviously, I'm not implying that Palestinians are Salafi militants, nor that the establishment of statehood would resolve all the region's woes. But Point one, the longer Palestinians remain stateless, the longer Salafi militants will have convenient recruiting causes for their campaign to destabilize all Muslim states. Point two, the greatest ally of Israeli intransigence has been not so much Israel's Western supporters, as is so often claimed, although that is an issue, but lack of unity among Palestinians and their regional supporters. To put it another way, the greatest fear of the current Israeli government is probably not so much Iran, despite what Mr. Netanyahu has been saying, but Palestinian and Arab unity of purpose. Point three, that unified front, Arabs acting together to support Palestinian statehood, including guarantees of Israel's security, will reflect the overwhelming majority the will of the overwhelming majority of the populace in the region, and that is another step in democratization by any other name. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sun. And our final speaker is Dr. Sarah Roy, Senior Research Scholar at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, Harvard University, board member of American Near East Refugee Agency, ANIRA, and the Center for American Jewish Studies at Baylor University, and the author of, of a number of excellent books about Gaza. Uh, Dr. Roy's work I've been following for many years, and I'm delighted to introduce her to you today. I, too, would like to uh, thank Dr. Anthony and the Council uh, for inviting me and for providing a forum for all of us here to speak. I'm going to focus my remarks on Gaza and uh, the situation in Gaza about which uh, people know uh, relatively little. The Gaza Strip is now in its 46th year of occupation, 21st year of closure, and sixth year of intensified closure, or as it's more commonly known, siege. There can be little doubt that the Israeli occupation is now accepted, if not embraced, as a durable status quo by key actors in the international community. The resulting normalization of the occupation assumes an extremely compelling form in the Gaza Strip. Unlike the West Bank, where it is characterized by the expansion of settlements, in Gaza it is seen in the fact that its status as an occupied territory has ceased to be a matter of international concern or interest, the focus of attention having shifted after Hamas's 2006 electoral victory and subsequent takeover of the Gaza Strip to Gaza's enforced isolation, containment, and punishment, rendering as illegitimate any notion of human rights 
and demo or democracy for Palestinians. What is happening to Gaza is no less than a systematic and progressive assault on its economy, environment, and society that has imposed considerable and possibly irreversible damage that, if allowed to continue, will, will have disastrous consequences. Of this, there should be no doubt. What is happening to Gaza is, in my view, catastrophic. It is also conscious and deliberate. So in the few minutes that I have, I would like to highlight some particularly cru uh, critical problems. First, the economy. The government of Israel has explicitly referred to its intensified closure policy in Gaza as a form of economic warfare. The government stated, quote, damaging the enemy's economy is in and of itself a legitimate means in warfare and a relevant consideration even when deciding to allow the entry of relief consignments. In, in a November 2008 cable from the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv released by WikiLeaks, U.S. officials wrote, Quote, as part of their overall embargo plan against Gaza, Israeli officials have confirmed to U.S. Embassy economic officers on multiple occasions that they intend to keep the Gazan economy on the brink of collapse without quite pushing it over the edge, functioning at the lowest level possible consistent with avoiding a humanitarian crisis, end quote. The most critical issue confronting the territory uh, economically is a ruinous, six-year-long blockade that ended normal economic functioning. Although closure has a long history in Gaza dating back to 1991, it became particularly onerous after Hamas's 2007 takeover when the closure was intensified, preventing the import of raw materials and the export of finished products, thus ending normal trade, especially with Israel and the West Bank, which are Gaza's uh, principal markets. Perhaps most critically, Israel's policy of economic warfare banned virtually all exports, which remains the case and is a major constraint on the manufacturing sector and on sustainable economic growth. For example, the UN reported that between January and May of 2007, Gaza exported around 4,800 truckloads of goods compared with 130 truckloads exported between January and May of this year, around 3% of its pre-June 2007 level, where it remains. And this is despite a promise in the 2005 Agreement on Movement and Access to allow 400 truckloads of exports each day. Hence, during the first five months of this year, Gaza was allowed to export one-third of what the AMA promised as allowable exports for one day. The main exception to the export ban involves a limited number of farmers who have since 2007 uh, allowed, been allowed to export flowers and strawberries to Europe, um, but this is quite minimal. The Israeli government has renounced its policy of economic warfare in favor of separation, which continues to be a political rather than a security decision, producing the same effect. Thus, normal trade, upon which Gaza's tiny economy is desperately dependent, continues to be prohibited despite a marginal easing of restrictions on certain imports and exports, which was announced by the Israeli government in June of 2010, allowing in more consumer goods. As of May of this year, uh, this number was up to 400, but it compares with between 4,000 to 7,000 goods that entered Gaza prior to 2007. And um, it allows in some constr limited construction materials for uh, donor-supervised uh, projects. 
A diminished and non-competitive private sector, the inability to trade freely within and outside the Palestinian territories, and severe restrictions on the mobility of labor provide a powerful illustration of economic disablement and the impoverishment it produces. Unemployment in Gaza currently stands at 30%, and that's a conservative figure, with the Gaza Strip ranked 17th in unemployment uh, among 196 countries and territories, according to the CIA. More significantly, in early 2012, the unemployment rate in Gaza for those aged 15 to 29 was 46.9%. Chronic unemployment, of course, is linked to poverty. Approximately 39% of Gaza's people live below the poverty line in 2011, a figure that would, a percentage that would be far greater without donor aid. Furthermore, in the absence of any humanitarian disaster or shortage of food, approximately 44% of people are food insecure, meaning they do not have access to enough food to meet their dietary needs, and between 70 to 80% of the population requires some form of humanitarian assistance. And this situation obtains, despite UN food distributions to over 1 million people and the economy's recent high growth rates themselves based largely on foreign aid and Gaza's illegal uh, or under ground tunnel economy. Now the environment. And there, here I'm going to focus on a bit on the buffer zone and the agricultural sector. It is perhaps in Gaza's agricultural sector that Israel's intentions are most visible and Gaza's decline most striking. The agricultural sector is an important part of the economy and it has been severely degraded, if not effectively destroyed. A key factor is is the buffer zone or access-restricted area that has been unilaterally imposed by Israel on the Gaza Strip's land and sea since the start of the second Palestinian uprising in 2000 and gradually widened over time. Buffer zone areas are totally or partially inaccessible to Palestinians. The new extended buffer zone identified by the UN as a hazard and danger zone and based in part on firings into the area now extends one kilometer into Gaza, well beyond the 300 meters uh, designated by Israel. Consequently, the buffer zone now absorbs nearly 14% of Gaza's total land area and encompasses somewhere between 48 to 55% of the Gaza Strip's total arable land, including many groundwater wells and roads, according to latest uh, uh, assessments. In fact, 95% of the land inside the buffer zone is arable. The UN reports that buffer zone restrictions result in an annual loss of about 83,000 U.S. tons of potential produce. Similarly, the extended buffer zone in the sea covers 85% of the maritime area promised to Palestinians in the Oslo Accords. 20 nautical miles has been reduced to 3 nautical miles where the waters are fouled by a daily sewage flow in excess of 23 million gallons. In fact, it was during uh, Operation Cast Lead, OCL, that both the arable, land, and maritime areas suffered their greatest losses. In fact, during the final days of Cast Lead, approximately 7,800 acres of agricultural land, both inside and outside the buffer zone, were bulldozed and flattened. This meant citrus trees, various other fruit trees, crops, nurseries, um, uh, greenhouses, farms, etc. And this, in turn, consequently, this has translated into the fact that these uh, one-third, or just around one-third of Gaza's total arable land is now out of production. Another critical constraint on agriculture, on the economy, and on the population, of course, is water. 
I don't have the time to get into the whole history of water here, but what I will uh, do is just um, highlight some key facts. First of all, at least 90% of Gaza's aquifer is polluted and unfit for human consumption. Due to the breakdown of Gaza's sanitation infrastructure, particularly after cast lead, the sewage flow in the Gaza Strip, together with other contaminants leaching from waste dumps, have led to elevated levels of nitrates and chlorides in the groundwater and soil, which pose a very serious risk to humans and livestock. Since 2008, between 60,000 and 90,000 cubic meters of treated or partially untreated sewage enter the environment every day. EWASH, which is an NGO working in this area, <clears throat> has stated, quote, 90% of water wells are contaminated with nitrates between two and eight times higher than WHO standards, end quote. Almost all of Gaza's, I mean, yes, almost all of Gaza's 117 municipal wells used for drinking water are seriously contaminated with a variety of pollutants. Remedial actions are largely prevented by Israel's blockade policy, which limits and prevents the entry of materials needed to repair, maintain, and upgrade Gaza sewage, wastewater treatment, and storage infrastructure, which is unable to cope with demand or lacks sufficient fuel to operate. Furthermore, state say, uh, says uh, save the children, quote, the compound problem of Gaza's depleted aquifer, a lack of proper sewage treatment and disposal system, and the difficulties of providing adequate service delivery has produced a grave environmental situation with significant health risks, end quote. According to ANIRA, 26% of disease in Gaza is water-related. And the internal findings of another international NGO I'm not at liberty to disclose concluded, quote, Nowhere else in the world has such a large number of people been exposed to such high levels of nitrates for such a long period of time. There is no precedent and no studies to help us understand what happens to people over the course of years of nitrate poisoning, end quote. A brief comment on society, and then I'll conclude. Gaza's declining economic and environmental conditions, which I've only just touched upon here, combined with high fertility and population growth rates, have resulted in increasing levels of malnutrition among Palestinian children below the age of five. Between 2000 and 2010, the prevalence of malnutrition rose by 41.3% nationally and by 60% in the Gaza Strip, with just under 10% of Gazan children under five suffering from stunting uh, in 2010, which is an indicator of chronic malnutrition. Stunting is low height for age. Nutritional deficiencies, particularly uh, vitamins A and D, are high among Gazan children under three, due in part to diarrheal infections that are linked to the access to clean water. In addition, says Ewash, quote, the prevalence of anemia is so high that it indicates a severe public health problem according to the WHO classification system. Save the Children, among other organizations, reports that between 68 to 74 percent of infants aged 9 to 12 months suffer from anemia, as do 59 percent of school children and 37 percent of pregnant women. According to the WHO, the most serious consequence of anemia include, quote, poor pregnancy outcome, impaired physical and cognitive development, increased risks of morbidity in children, and reduced work productivity in adults. Anemia contributes to 20% of all maternal deaths, end quote. For Save the Children, quote, they say diseases of poverty and conflict 
combined with a degenerating healthcare system, are claiming growing numbers of Gaza's children. I'll finish in one minute. There is rising concern among Palestinian and European specialists with regard to the reproductive health of Gaza's population, a reported rise in the number of birth deformities and congenital anomalies, and in the incidence of cancer after Operation Cast Lead. This is due not only to soil and water contamination, but to also to the possible use of toxic weaponry during uh, the war. Another problem concerns uh, centers on changing social attitudes, on what happens to a once productive and motivated population who have been forced largely into a state of non-productivity dependent on humanitarian aid for basic sustenance. This deprivation is deliberate and imposed on a people desperate and able to work. In this regard, not only are Israel and donor governments culpable, but so too are the Palestinian Authority governments in Gaza and the West Bank, whose internal struggle for power, especially over the flow of assistance and the movement of humanitarian aid workers, diminish any possibility of economic reform. And <clears throat> I will conclude with the words of a 17-year-old uh, Palestinian boy detained in an Israeli prison and I feel that his words capture the essence of life in Gaza today. He says, quote, What it feels like to live here, you ask? It's like being a shadow of your own, caught on the ground, not being able to break out, and you see yourself lying there, but you cannot fill the shadow with life. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Roy, for an illuminating and very sad uh, recitation of the facts about what it's like in Gaza today. Those of us that have been there have seen firsthand the tragedy and are very acutely aware that it's Americans' tax money, over $8 million per day, that is enabling all of this. Uh, so anybody that wonders why there is hostility to Americans, think of that where your children or grandchildren. Uh, I'll ask Dr. Duke Anthony and I will, will share the, the honor of asking questions. The first one, would you like to do? The first one is for Mr. Perry, who went first, and we'll have a little more time now. You say Palestinians are fighting for freedom and land and distancing your wording from Obama's, quote, rights, end of quote. How are they so distinctly different? of freedom and land, not rights, the right to live, the right to a family, and countless other rights outlined in the UN's Declaration of Human Rights are denied by Israelis. Uh, perhaps I'm making, uh, perhaps I'm making a uh, distinction without a difference. I, I, I've been spending the last year in the United States, I've been spending less time in the Middle East and more time in the United States than last year trying to figure out why it is that I'm so attracted to the Palestinian conflict. And um, it struck me... Moving closer. I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. Can you hear me now? I, I, I've been spending the last year in the United States and traveling less to the Middle East trying to figure out what it is about the Palestinian conflict that is so attractive to me, and I think I figured it out. Uh, I grew up on the edges of an uh, Indian reservation. Uh, where people have their rights and have had their rights. Uh, and there's a sign that says you are now entering 
the Sand Hill Indian Reservation. And you go on the reservation and it's different. There's five times the alcoholism, three times the infant mortality rate, five times the impoverishment. And it's not the same. And people can vote. They have their rights. They can say what they want. And if you study the history of the Native American, American Indian Movement, the Native American Movement, it's, it's the same history. We demanded that they democratize. We demanded that they respect settler rights. We demanded that they be nonviolent. We demanded that they not be corrupt. We demanded that they keep their prior agreements. We demand, it was unbelievable. We took their land and we demanded that they accept it. And we even demanded that they form a security service to police themselves so we could take their land. And they did it. And we made, well, who was it? Chief Joseph said they only, the whites made many promises, but they only made one promise that they kept. They kept, they promised to take our land and they took it. And I can see, you can see where this is going in the West Bank. And here's where it's going. The Israelis are going to take that land. And then when they've taken what they want, they're going to say, you can have the rest, we'll give you a Palestinian state. And everyone in America is going to go, oh, how gracious Israel is. And the Palestinians are going to end up with a casino. And the, and, the, and the Israelis are going to say the Palestinian states in Jordan, like General Grant said, the Indian country is really Canada. This is where it's headed. Uh, Palestinians can vote. They can travel in their own buses. They can have their own community centers. But it's different. They don't have their land. And it's, it, this is not a fight for rights. This is a fight for their core belief, which is their... And if you, if you grow up in an Indian community in the United States, it's about this. If you go to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota and you talk to an, a member of the American Indian Movement, American, Joe American Horse, and you say, what is it about? He'll get on his hands and knees and he'll touch the ground. Um, there are several questions about the, the media coverage, why, why it's so flawed. Uh, one questioner asks, for example, there are a number of attacks on Palestinian Christians, and yet we almost never hear about that aspect. And another person asks about the data that I presented at the beginning, um, noting that it's 10 years old and asking if we have any more recent data. Um, we do. We have some studies from about five years ago on the... Uh, both the, the New York Times and on the main network news, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and they're uh, pretty much what I showed you about the first year. I like to emphasize the first year because that, uh, as we know, first impressions are so powerful. So that frames the context within which most Americans see this issue. And when they don't know Palestinians are being killed, they think that Israeli actions are retaliatory rather than being aware that Israeli actions of violence preceded the Palestinian uh, reaction. 
So we did find there was another study by an excellent group called Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting that did an excellent study on national public radio, NPR, in which they found that NPR reported on about 90% of Israeli children's deaths and only 20% of Palestinian children's deaths. So a similar pattern to what we found. Um, also in our study about the Associated Press of about five years ago, we found that in addition to largely failing to report on Palestinian deaths in general, they also left entire categories that are of significance uncovered, so Americans don't know they're occurring. One of those was the nonviolence movement that happens several times a week in Palestinian villages, mostly in the West Bank, but also in Gaza. Uh, very courageous movements, international movements, people are getting killed and, and maimed during these, and yet AP had almost in our study, we found it almost never even used the term nonviolence. Also, there is a, a movement in Israel, the refuser movement, in which uh, many young people and, and older are refusing to serve in the Israeli military and to take part in the occupation forces actions. And that also had gone virtually uncovered in the Associated Press. So we're also doing a, a study now on the Associated Press coverage that will be much more updated, but we're, that, that one still is not yet completed. Um, there's more I could say, but instead I'll go to another question for, and of course the panelists can, can answer any of these. Uh, but a very interesting one is a, a number of people are wondering why this is, what we can do about it. Uh, in many cases, what Americans in particular can do. Uh, for example, one person says, while there is overwhelming evidence of the injustice inflicted on the Palestinians by the Israeli government, what do the panelists see as the key elements that need to change in order for American foreign policy to begin holding Israel accountable for its actions? More importantly, how do we make the changes and change the discourse about this conflict among Americans, where this topic holds such sensitivity in certain portions of our population? What do the panelists see as actionable solutions? It's good, this. Um, <clears throat> First of all, I think it's extremely important to educate yourselves, to remain um, uh, informed on these issues, and to continue to lobby your political representatives on these issues. It, it, it may seem to you that, and it often seems to me too, that it doesn't have much impact, but it actually can have impact. Secondly, I think as a strategy, there are two things I would point to. One is to focus on, uh, which I did it in, just in part in my presentation, is to focus on children and the impact that these policies are having on children in this territory. And the other issue for me, or the other strategy for me, is to focus on the um, um, culpability of U.S. policy in producing these conditions and these situations, linking what is happening there to our own policy and presenting this to people in this country through civil society organizations, through op-eds, uh, through various um, forums uh, that can educate people in this way. And of course, it's, it's, a, it's not an overnight process. It's slow. It's incremental. But looking at the way in which this conflict is now understood and addressed, the discourse has widened considerably. Uh, in the United States over the last 20 years uh, in, 
around this issue and what is considered acceptable discourse and legitimate discourse um, today is very different than it was 20 years ago. And could, I, could I just add, is this one live? Just be close to it. Let me just add, I'd like to um, support what Dr. Roy just said. Education is the key to everything, which is why we do what we do. But getting back to the question that I'm not sure you addressed, you pointed out that the media don't cover the majority of the atrocities perpetrated against the Palestinians. And I think the questioner asked why. Um, and all of us get that question repeatedly. And I think that the subtext of that question is, who can we blame? And I always try to redirect that question and say that the media are just people, too. They're poorly educated. No offense to our, us as educators, but they're no better educated than anybody else, and usually less. No offense. Um, American media, commercial media. Uh, B, they play to the lowest common denominator, by which I mean money. The, our commercial media have to make money. Uh, tragedy against foreigners doesn't sell. Hate to be so crass, but Allison will cut me off if I'm not quick, so I have to cut to the chase. Um, so education is everything. Educate regular people, educate media. Media voices who are responsible tend to be the ones who aren't commercially motivated and who are better educated. We all know some examples that are out there today, but I won't reveal myself by identifying who you should listen to. But you can do this. You can educate yourself. We are Americans. We have the greatest access to education in the world. Maybe not in our public schools, given the decline of education funding, but we've got the Internet. We have to work at it. I'd also like to reaffirm uh, Dr. Roy's comment about the democratic process. We're all in support of the democratic process for people who are transitioning from non-democracy to democracy. But we have to remember, it's not a panacea. Democracy is very hard work. You have to get out there and lobby and vote and write letters, bring pressure. Otherwise, democracy is meaningless. We can't just sit back and take bets, as we've seen in this contemporary coverage <clears throat> of our current electoral cycle. It's all about who's ahead, who's behind, what are the numbers. That's not the focus. The focus should be what are the issues. We have to make sure, as educated people, that we bring issues to the forefront of the electoral process. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Allison, can I just... Uh, I, I completely agree with the excellent remarks by Dr. Sun, just wholeheartedly. And just to add a little bit to them, I have studied quite a bit about the media coverage, including why this is happening. So there are, in addition to those remarks, there are some specifics that, of course, take place. As was mentioned, the financial pressure of advertisers and pro-Israel groups that orchestrate camp campaigns that will hurt the media financially is a significant part of it. Um, there is more, though. Uh, I've consistently found that the journalists who supply the information to the United States that are based in the media quite often are Israel partisans. And I don't say that lightly. They are people, in some cases, they themselves have served in the Israeli media, uh, or, uh, sorry, in the Israeli military, and, uh, their, or their family members have. 
the recent bureau chief for the area for the New York Times had a son in the Israeli military while he was supposedly an objective neutral reporter on the topic. That's very significant. The Associated Press has a control bureau through which all of the reports come to the United States. The control bureau is located in Israel and is staffed largely by people living in Israel. Uh, often they themselves are Israeli citizens, and if not they, their, their families are. So, you know, again, I've written long articles. You can look at those if you'd like to. But it's uh, pretty clear what's going on and very disturbing, and we can take a, play a role in changing this by becoming informed and telling our, our fellow, fellow citizens about it. I think that the question that was put on the table poses a larger challenge. I think, frankly, what we need is an American spring. Uh, people thought we got one four years ago on election day, and there's been an enormous amount of disappointment on that. I think probably one of the most disappointing moments was about a year ago when the Palestinian Authority applied for membership uh, recognition uh, by the United Nations Security Council by any standards whatsoever just simply reading the text of all of the resolutions that have passed through the General Assembly, through the Security Council over the decades, it should have been a no-brainer. And the United States should have been proudly in the lead of recognizing the Palestinian Authority's right to be given full UN membership. Now we're in a situation where at least news reports seem to suggest that the administration is threatening to cut off funding of the United Nations if the General Assembly is allowed to go forward and give non-member state status to the Palestinian Authority under circumstances where the U.S. has only one vote out of about 198 and therefore there's no veto power. So I think that there are some fundamental issues in this country, issues of economic inequality and economic crisis, issues of hyperinflation in education, issues related to the Middle East, issues related to violations of our own constitution and the way that we're going into war these days. And so long as this media and general entertainment factor uh, turns our population into a bunch of sheep, uh, I, I don't think that we can look at the situation in the Middle East with very much surprise. We used to be a leading force for justice and good in the world. We fought a revolution. That's why I went back to the history of the dawn of the issue of partition of Palestine, because we had leaders at that point who were much more informed about the historical Republican and anti-colonial legacy of this country. So I think one of the critical things is we've got to relearn our own history. And as I say, I think we're headed for an American spring. And whether it's peaceful and harmonious or whether it gets pretty ugly on the edges, as Mark suggested, is going to be the case in Palestine. I think that's the solution. It's not going to be getting basically letters to the editor in newspapers protesting that the media is biased. Uh, what's new? Thank you. As you can see, this was to be a pa panel on Palestine, but to many of us, and I think to our whole nation when we wake up, this is very much an American issue. Uh, I guess that's what we can leave you with. And uh, there is going to be a, a national, we hope, a historic event to sort of kick this off a little bit, which will be called a National Summit 
to reassess the U.S.-Israel special relationship. It will be in the Washington, D.C. area in March 9th to 10th with distinguished speakers of expertise, military, diplomatic, economic, etc. For the first time, this will be openly and publicly discussed and the damage that it is doing not only to the region, but to the United States. And I'm very happy that we have so many military officers in the, the audience today. I grew up in a military family, and those of us who believe in defending our nation um, need to become more aware of this aspect of defending our nation. Thank you. We'll bring this session to a close with a segue uh, to the next one. But as you can see, these voices are seldom heard, and they, they need to be heard and seen and appreciated and studied um, and accommodated more widely than is the case in terms of the present uh, situation. Uh, we chose these panelists and this focus uh, for a reason. As I mentioned, that this is the oldest, longest, most massive and pervasive of all of the obstacles in improving America's relationship with the Arab peoples uh, as a whole. It's the one that places us most often in an embarrassing, untenable uh, situation. It places us in a situation wherein the world's highest political body, the United Nations Security Council, we have been the Olympic champion of thwarting the processes and principles uh, of democratic uh, of voting in, the, in that body. We cannot say that we've been hammered and pressured uh, by Europe or Africa or Latin America or Asia. We cannot say that we've been pressured by the 1.6 billion Muslims to behave this way, or anyone amongst the 380 million Arabs to behave this way. And there are implications from actions and implications from inactivity, whereas it is patently obvious that this aspect of American policies towards the Arab world is uh, potentially, if not already actually, America's Achilles heel in terms of its previous uh, reservoir of goodwill and its constant champion of the rule of law and fair play and one person, one vote and freedom and, and equality. Uh, this is the, the carbuncle uh, on the uh, American uh, frame. If people are dissatisfied with policies here in the United States, then the soft underbelly of public policies is public attitudes. And key to public attitudes is information, it's insight, it's knowledge, it's understanding. And this is what we hope to achieve by having this session and these speakers. Please join me in thanking them. <laughs>